You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Mort Siebert and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where we'll do our best to bring you into the world of rules-based investing by sharing our observations and hard lessons learned over the last few decades, hoping that you can avoid making some of our mistakes. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. We love that you're here and we'll do our best to inform and perhaps even entertain you about systematic investing during the next hour or so. This week is a bit different. We're actually recording Friday evening. So let me start by saying good afternoon to you, Jerry, and good evening, Moritz. Good evening. Good afternoon. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks. Very well. Um, quick review of uh, this uh, week. Um, of course, after last week, which was a tough one, uh, it was a bit of a crude way to start the week with this large spike in energy prices following the attack in Saudi Arabia. Uh, which, of course, for many CTAs was against uh, their positioning um, and which Nomoro and um, Bloomberg was very quick to point out in an article, I think Monday or Tuesday morning, um, you know, about how CTAs are struggling in September. Um, but as expected, I guess uh, they didn't follow up with another article a couple of days later um, when the markets had sold off again. Um, frankly, personally, I think the performance Monday, Tuesday was pretty flat if you look at the days together. Um, but of course, we'll dive into more of that a little bit later. But nevertheless, I feel that Bloomberg often like to sensationalize these events when they are to the um, negative for, for uh, trend-following strategies. But, you know, the, the reaction in the energy markets, they, they certainly are important to discuss because I think they remind us of the importance of diversification. Um, so maybe we'll keep that in mind when we get into this week's uh, uh, market moves, etc., etc. Um, but with uh, all the energetic moves in oil, of course, I think a lot of investors may have missed that there are other markets on the move this week. Actually, sugar, uh, I think, is up about 11% so far this week as we speak. Um, which is more than crude oil, at least last time I looked. Um, so another challenge for some trend-following strategies. But to the rescue, we saw uh, some down moves. I think in uh, markets like Lean Hawks was probably a good thing. And bond markets, of course, stabilized and started even to move up, which helped uh, some of our uh, positioning, generally speaking, as an industry. But of course, uh, the press also had a little bit of a um, you know, uh, another theme at least to dive into. Um, and this time it was relating to the skepticism by David Harding about trend following as uh, whether it's still as effective as it used to be. And then on the other side of the argument, his two former partners, Martin Lurik and Mike Adam. Uh, so I think the press may be trying to uh, make a little bit more about that disagreement on this topic than it really is, but certainly they got a lot of airtime. And then, of course, finally, let's not forget that uh, Tuesday night we saw repo rates in the U.S. hit 10% at some point, um, which prompted the Fed uh, to inject $53 billion into the banking system, um, which I think is the first time since the financial crisis. And then, of course, we saw the Fed follow up with a rate cut of 25 bips, uh, which didn't please everyone. Certainly people who live in a white house didn't like it. Um, but, um, you know... 
he also followed up, I think, on the press conference to say that they should, we shouldn't expect negative rates in the U.S. Um, we'll see about all of that. Anyway, lots of things happening. Uh, Moritz, um, how did that all pan out for, for you this week? Hopefully better than last week. Much, much better than last week. I'm a recovering trend following, trend follower, so to say. Um, <laughs> so quite happy about this week. Well, it hasn't ended yet. It's still, uh, it's still moving as we speak. But um, I'd be surprised if it turns negative. So you know, making money from from the bonds, as I've said last week, I, I didn't trade a single contract in those bonds. So I kept my long position, and and obviously that you know that was that was a good thing this week because uh, I made money from it. Um, the other markets, equities, made some money for me, mostly on the long side. Um, Bitcoin kind of sits there around 10,000, feels kind of like doesn't know whether it wants to go higher or lower, stuck in the middle. Um, currencies, so-so, some gains, some losses. Um, really the only, well, the dollar trend is still there. Um, the pound's coming back a bit, but, you know, give or take, I uh, I made more than more than 6% back in this week alone, so... That was good. That's very impressive. How did you handle oil, by the way, just out of curiosity? Yeah, that that's uh, it didn't affect me that much because I have a split position still in the oil markets, which means I, I have a slight long position in WTI and a short position in, in Brent. Almost same size, so it was kind of like flat the crude uh, sector, if you will. So the P&L really came from from heating oil and from RBOP, but uh, you know those positions weren't fully developed, and uh, so the, the spike didn't really affect my portfolio all too much. No, good for you, excellent. Yeah. I mean, uh, on our side, uh, performance certainly was impacted by uh, the spike in energy uh, on on Monday. Um, we also have some split positions in in the sector, uh, long one of the energies and short three going into Monday um, and one probably close to flat. So the three shorts uh, did hurt on Monday. Um, again, like with the bonds, when we see big uh, changes and volatility increases, our models do react and, and we do, uh, you know, uh, uh, reduce position size in, in, in those markets. Um, but of course, um, this may not be uh, the right thing to do. Who knows? Um, but that's how the model reacts, nevertheless. Um, so yeah, uh, Tuesday and and the rest of the week, small profits uh, every single day. So the week looks like it's going to end on the positive note. Not as not as strong as as you, Moritz, but uh, we'll we'll take it. Um, and um, you know some of the things you mentioned uh, as well uh, did okay. Uh, most, of course, the recovery came from fixed income, uh, but soft was actually also pretty good on our side, and the losses really came from from the energy sector. So, uh, yeah, not not too bad, not too bad. Jerry, you you did much better than us uh, last week. Did you continue your winning streak this time around? That seemed like a good week. Uh, palladium near the highs, cattle. Near the lows, those trends are still looking pretty good. I like to go through the charts and look and see, uh, you know, how many ATR are we away from new highs or new lows? And it's, I just try not to, if it's so close, I mean, I'm not even going to comment on it. You know, you just, uh, <clears throat> there's a huge cost of getting out too quickly and having the market reverse on you and you have to get right back in. So that's kind of how philosophically I like to look at it is, golly, if we're two or three ATRs from all-time highs, lighten up. So what if it's a bad day? You know, just uh, be happy. You know, do I have on the right positions <clears throat> system? Uh, you know, is the system's doing a pretty good job? 
I think uh, it is a little intriguing, the uh, bond sell-off. I don't have a lot of bonds. I have zero energy except uh, short natural gas and the emissions, long emissions. But uh, it is kind of funny how uh, a lot of the tr moving averages and breakout exits that we have a tendency to use, they don't uh, pay any attention to how far we are from the highs or the lows or how much this sell-off in the bonds really how painful it was. Uh, you're just sitting there and it's just really a lot to take sometimes to see how far your stop is away and you want to book that profit. And it's so difficult to just continue to follow your system that may not optimize this particular trade. But over time, if you did it on all the trades, you'll be more than happy. So it's that we live with that, that uh, contradiction all the time. We sure do, we sure do. So pretty busy week, I, I think, from a news flow point of view. Did that translate into a busy week in the uh, social media land, Twitter in particular, of course, which we love to dig into? Uh, th yeah, it was a big week for me. A lot of good stuff, uh, headlines that I would like to make fun of, um, studies that I saw, new kind of papers people had written, articles, interviews, like, as you mentioned, I tweeted the heck out of uh, the HL guys and uh, Harding's foul mouth and other language he was using. So I thought it was all very funny. So big week. We'll never get through all of them. We don't need to because we'll probably have a lot of good questions as well. Yeah, we certainly have a few questions uh, lined up. Um, so let's run through a few tweets and, uh, and see how we go. And then we'll jump into... Um to the questions um, as we come to uh, a close. Uh, this one I tweeted last night. So 18 hours ago, this got the most interest. Who, I can never tell. I can never, I know I have, uh, I just went over 20,000 followers on Twitter. So uh, it's a lot of loyal people who love trend following and who could care less about anything else I have to say. But I'm always a little surprised at uh, what turns them on. And this got so many likes um, and uh, no clue and uh, that it was going to occur. But, of course, I'm in love with all the tweets I have. I think they're all pretty fantastic. But uh, I have a lot of four likes as well. Um, and this is from Howard Marks. Billionaire investor picks not losing money uh, is more important than missing opportunities. He says, I would emphasize avoiding losing money over avoiding missing opportunities. And of course, this strikes me as incredibly incorrect. And my comment to it was, uh, missing big trades that could make your year are always the biggest mistakes. And it's a false choice for those who use stop losses and take small losses. More than likely, he just missed a big trade. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the comment that Wayne had in his interview about not having any risk on is 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 risky or, or something along those lines. Um, but I think, I mean, in in our case, the way we tr all trade, uh, absolutely, the the biggest risk we have is missing missing the big trades, the outliers that paid for pay for all the uh, the small losses along the way. Um, so it's a little bit surprising. Um, to hear something like that, I think from someone uh, as successful as as Howard Marks, and I again, I don't quite understand this. Well, I do understand from a human behavior point of view why we want to miss losing money. I mean, nobody enjoys losing money, but 
if that's the price we have to pay in order to get the long-term returns, I mean, if you're always focused on missing uh, or, or, or not losing money, I mean, it's almost inevitable that you're going to lose uh, out on some massive opportunities, in my opinion. Well, how do you know? How do you know when it's time to to lighten up and reduce your positions and you know uh, reduce the risk of losing money? Versus, how do you know when it's time to be aggressive? Uh, you know, the three of us we have no good view for that, which is why we're following our systems. But I guess you know, in the in the case of Howard Marks, he he's a discretionary trader in the credit and bond space, and uh, over the past decades, he's had you know, quite a few good calls and good success in terms of like, you know, seeing the cycles and, you know, when he wanted to reduce positions and when he wanted to, uh, uh, to go back into the game and, and, you know, get, get long. So he's got a good track record on that. It's just, just not for me. I agree with Jerry, you know, uh, or with, with the two of you, um, missing the one big trade is a, a substantial risk. I'm not willing to take it. I mean, how do you even know? I mean, how do you know when you enter a trade whether it's going to be good or bad in the first place? And I think Jerry, exactly. you tweeted uh, maybe early in the week, or maybe we just discussed it. I can't remember that. You know, very often some of our biggest winners can start out being a loser. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. So no, but I think it's just the dilemma that a lot of fundamental managers uh, have to live with. Uh, they don't have objective rules that are based upon price, and they don't want to get caught in the big sell-off that's so obvious. It's been obvious for a long time now. The stock market was overvalued, but it just kind of keeps going up. So I think that this is the dilemma, you know, that uh, we have our rule, we, uh, we take our small loss, and I don't really classify the give back, uh, a, a big give back in the boond like uh, last week as even a loss. It's just uh, my mega profit is now a little bit smaller. So I wouldn't even say that's risk or that's losing money. I know a lot that most people think, oh, God, that's absolutely losing money. Okay, but it's, uh, you know, I doubt it because it could go back to new highs. And so, uh, yeah, I think this is just their issue they have to bear if you don't trade a systematic approach that lets profits run and keeps the losses relatively small. Um, you're golden. You know, you're like a superpower. We've said this before. It's a superpower to have these stop losses. Um, <clears throat> it's never a question, oh, my gosh, you're agonizing over doing the next trade that could make your year. And that's sort of a trend-following thing as well, this skewness and this average trade, being uh, the, the outliers being so large and making all the money. So, you know, once again, I just love pointing out um, kind of the problems of uh, not giving in to systematic trend. Yeah, and even if you relate it back to the equity markets, I think there are some statistics out that in the last 35 years, it may not be accurate, but I think directionally I'm right on this one. I mean, in the last 35 years, the average uh, drop in, in the S&P every year is something like 14%. So, you know, it's painful. Something like 27 out of those 35 years have ended in a positive year. So, I mean, it's it's like you can't really win without taking some risk. And focusing on taking no risk doesn't really... I mean, it's hard to argue against Howard Marks because they've been incredibly successful, of course. So we have to keep that in mind. But, but still, as a concept, uh, as trend followers, at least, we probably sit on the complete opposite side of that coin. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's <clears throat> knows a lot more than me, but... 
it's not always can be right. So we can point it out in our opinion when he's not perfect. But uh, it's a it's a lesson, and he'd probably be able to. I I would never want to get on a stage and debate anything with that guy. He's <laughs> way too smart. Um, he's of course welcome to join us on this weekly <laughs> podcast to uh, to yeah. take the debate. Uh, you know, there's a standing yeah. invitation for you, Mr. Marx. It's another tweet I've had pinned to my uh, account, and I keep forgetting to bring it up, and I really like it. And this is uh, really something that Niels has talked about a lot. You know. Uh, the move af afoot to collect assets and charge 50 basis points in trend following is uh, out there and mutual funds that have fixed fees, no incentive fee, but Niels has always tried to uh, explain and from his point of view that there's a lot going on in, in a CTA fund that you should be willing to pay for. It's not as easy as it looks and replication is not as wonderful as it may sound. And Wayne had a tweet a few weeks ago about um, after you've been in the markets for a while and you have lots of experience, it's not that you'll have an abundance of information to use, it's that you'll finally know how much of it to ignore. And then this other gentleman, he, he came up with a really good uh, tweet here saying, this reminds me of people who can charge a lot for what looks like not much work. The truth is they spent so much time in blind alleys that they have reduced what works to a few variables. The outsider doesn't see the graveyard of work behind what looks like simplicity. And I think that's, you know, the better you make your stuff and your, your trading, the more efficient and the simple, the fewer rules and variables and uh, the more robust it is to the outside world. It can look like, oh, that's pretty easy. I could kind of do that. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting insight. I mean, I like that. And also, I mean, I think maybe we have done ourselves a disservice sometimes by talking about trend following being easy. I, I think it's it's anything but easy uh, on many levels. Um, I think also we shouldn't confuse what trend following was like 20, 30 years ago and what it's like today. I think it's a lot more sophisticated. And I think the sophistication lies in drilling down, making something which is complex, uh, relatively relatively simple um and i use the word relatively carefully here um so um and 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 again i mean back to to your original point i think there's a i think people are being fooled investors are being fooled um if they just focus on cost and they um you know and it, of course it's a great story to tell how can we you know why can we offer this so cheap when everybody else um, is, is, is charging more. But actually, there is a study out, uh, and I forget right this minute um, where I got it from, but it came out, I think, today from one of the news channels, um, or maybe it was an email I received. There's a study out where they looked at different hedge fund strategies, including uh, CTAs, and the average fee they were charging to pension plans in the U.S., and yes, there is a tendency the managers are willing to discount their management fee, but actually the performance fee were pretty stable and very close to 20%. Um, so hopefully um, even these larger allocators uh, recognize uh, value and talent uh, among these managers are willing to pay for it. At the end of the day, they should concern themselves about the net return that is being delivered. I mean, who wouldn't want to invest in the medallion fund and pay 5 and 46 and still get 25% or more net return? Of course you would. Um, but, but 
every all the all the analysis I do on an ongoing basis tracking uh, our peers, the cheap replicators, and I don't necessarily need to name them. I think people know who they are. They uh, they fail to deliver the numbers, um, and I but they attract a hell of a lot of assets, and I really don't understand why investors. Um, uh, fall for that because they like the low headline fee i think but you know what what you say niels is correct everything i believe is easy to the outsider easy to the observer right any outsider looking at trend following will say well that's easy i can do that i'm not going to pay for that and i think the media is is kind of like tooting that same horn you know with all those articles on bloomberg you know blaming trend followers and this is the simple strategy and they have all those mock-up strategies which which then kind of try to track us but they're kind of like off it's like me, you know, when, when I watch the Summer Olympics and there's this like hammer thrower doing a 40 meter hammer throw and I will go, well, pop, that's easy. I can do that. Well, no, you cannot. You have to be an insider to know how difficult it is. And the three of us, let's call us insiders with, you know, that trend following. We know how difficult it is to come up with those rules, even though they may at the end of the day look simple and be simple. But getting from A to B, getting getting to that point is is a a lot of pain and it, at least you know for me it was a lot of time you know looking at things and finding things and still you know it's it, it never stops you're you're always in the middle of the thing i i find you know it doesn't change that frequently anymore but it's still you know you you keep at it and 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 that yeah last week was difficult this week feels better but when you're doing it all the time this is all but easy and and all those mock-up strategies ah. Uh, I'm not so sure about them. And let's not forget, I mean, all strategies that are based on on behavior and behavioral finance, so to speak. Um, you know, the hard the hard, part part of the the hard part is really the implementation, doing it every day and uh, keeping at it know, and not and giving up. At, yeah. yeah. So it's not just about you know developing the model and finding things that 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 work. Um, you know, that's also running a business, finding the clients, raising the, you know raising the assets. There are lots of things that go into uh, a well-oiled... Uh, um. Yeah, and, and what you just said with the S&P, I think, you know, those those numbers, I've, I've heard them somewhere else, it's like every year we have at least a 14% correction, if not more, and that's every year, right? And, and some of those corrections, they turn into full-blown bear markets, and then, you know, it's even deeper. So, you know, even then, if you're down 14, maybe this year was, I'm not sure what, you know, what we have been down this year in, in terms of the S&P, you have to kind of like stay long. And it's, you know, I think for many people that's very difficult to do because it feels like, oh, the economy is turning, the recession is coming. I've read this on Bloomberg. I should lighten up on the stocks, right? So you're selling at the bottom and then boom. Now we're seeing some indicators from the US that maybe there's no recession and there's positive surprises in terms of economic activity. And there you go, they go long again, but they buy at a higher price. And that's, you know, the kind of stuff that we just, you know, we, we, we don't want to do we don't want to do that. We don't want to be making those calls. We'll just, you know, keep the position until we have to change it because the trend has changed. Just can't talk about predictions not working. You can't predict. Value doesn't predict. Nothing predicts. You got to live that and have your investment processes reflect that you're not going to predict and you need to figure out a way to insulate yourself from forces, the media and your friends and competitors who are essentially predicting, you know. I saw that article today in Bloomberg about the maybe the recession's not coming. And I think the most disappointed people about this are trend followers 
it, it's an uptrend. I mean, why are they so uh, rooting against the stock market and the passive people who are, they say they never get out. They just, you just hold on. But it just seems there's so many people rooting for um, this to finally happen, you know, finally when I've been predicting this uh, sell-off and this retracement for so long, uh, but it's, I don't know, it's uh, strikes me a little weird that, uh, and I've just had so many years of not doing that, although I have my own opinions, but they're frequently wrong. I heard something this week about the money supply that I'd never heard before, like uh, the Fed, um, what everyone missed about, maybe you guys knew this, but what everyone missed about the Federal Reserve coming in in 2008 and flooding uh, the world with all this money was that this money never ended up in the supply. It, it, it stayed in these banks. You know, I just, okay, I never heard that. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, you've got to embrace the whole idea of maybe the fundamentals are non-existent or opposite of the trend. And sometimes that is just the juiciest thing going. You know, nobody agrees. You have no clue what's going on here. And yet the trend is um, going in a different direction. And it's so important to make that your bottom line. Well, given the fact that the Fed releases something like 45,000 data points or, you know, numbers on a yearly basis, I mean, how do anyone really make sense of that, right? And, and let alone get the market direction right. So, uh, you know, and... I think we all know that predicting, you know, about the future is very hard, if not impossible. So, um, yeah, we follow rules. That's uh, the best way we found to cope with this. Um, so, what else? So that was a long debate about one tweet. <laughs> there was a good uh, paper written this week by you and Kirk at Cantab, and I don't think the tweets can do it justice. So, uh, go to my Twitter and, and get the link or go to cantabcapital.com and you pro I think it's uh, they'll let you read that paper and it's really good but it was he sort of was making a distinction between com complexity and compl and he says that we need complicated processes precisely because the markets which we trade are complex complexity needs to be factored out from the markets to hopefully generate a reasonable forecast of how the security will behave and I think that's um so important, and once again, it's you can't that paper essence of it can't be captured in a tweet. But I think what trend following does is it tries to, you know, give you a, a way to organize things. And eliminating most things is the first step in organizing. You know, I think the Google uh, motto a few years ago was we want to organize the world, and uh, in a lot of different areas, that's what they're doing. And I think to some degree, the world and the markets can get so complex that trend following and systematic trading sort of helps you organize it. It's not perfect. It looks silly sometimes. Sometimes it looks like a genius. But just having those rules and committing to those rules helps you keep your sanity a lot more so than um, when the f popular cliched fundamentals start to break down and, uh, you know, value and all that sort of stuff let you down for 10 or 20 years. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence out there that suggests that you know complex problems has to be solved with simple solutions um you know i think there's many 
a lot of evidence uh, to to suggest that. And financial markets don't really get much more complex. You don't get much more complex problems than that because there's so many dimensions and 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 things uh, impacting it. So, um, but as you say, I mean, it's it's not a perfect solution, but it's it's a solution on the other hand that works. And I still. You know, as as a good example of that, I just still want to to um, remind people that there aren't that many, if any, discretionary or fundamental investors with track records as long as the trend-following community. It just does not exist, and I don't think people can ignore that fact. There's a reason why these strategies are still around, in my opinion. What else did? Twitterland providers with in terms of talking point? Uh, well, I found a paper that I don't think I had read before. It's from 2017, and I really liked it. Uh, I put the link out there, and it was talking about um, backtesting and how backtesting compares to um, the future. So what when you do the backtest, how do you... You're hoping that... Uh, we certainly are thinking that, okay, the future... Uh, should look a little bit like uh, very similar to our our back test, and uh, these uh, guys reported that um, there was a 73% deterioration in sharp ratios on average between back tested and live performance periods, with most of that uh, being in the more complex uh, or complicated use the right word complicated strategies than the simpler strategies. Uh, which I thought that was sort of fascinating. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, I didn't get a chance to read the whole paper, but uh, I love that conclusion. And and I think it's true. I've, um, I think I've spotted that paper one or two years ago. I think it's a bit, bit, bit older. And, um, but I remember those numbers and I'm not surprised because if I remember correctly, it focuses on like uh, a lot of those bank developed QIS systematic indices and index strategies for which, you know, you, you de define the rules and then you put them down in a rule book and then uh, people start trading them. And honestly, you know, since the past 10 years, many of them have been built in order to be sold to clients, right? So they have been built in order to produce a very nice historical return stream um, and, and they've been overfit and, uh, and then they stopped working in in real time as you know as soon as they go live and what what i also found interesting and this is probably not in this paper but a, a different study is that as a a guy who looked at a bunch of white papers written by academics uh, in the finance space and you know he kind of like looked at the trading strategies that those academics were putting forward and he came to the conclusion that 50 percent of those um are not even implementable in the way the academics describe them. You know, they had kind of like they were looking one day into the future or they were, you know, trading at, at points at which you just could not trade. So it was just completely unrealistic. And yet there's like an 80-page paper written about the thing with, you know, statistical body of evidence as to why this works and that works. But the at the core of the thing, the, the object that's being analyzed is not even, uh, you know, realistically tradable. I found that interesting too. Um, so there's a lot of stuff out there. I think this is the fair summary. A lot of, a lot of, you know, information about trading strategies and a lot of trading strategies being, you know, portrayed as, 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 as great. And you look at them and they have great historical returns, but 
in all fairness, you know, lots of those have to be discounted uh, by quite a big, big margin. And, and I think this is what this paper is saying. I hope the three of us are not among those. Well, I mean, I think that, that maybe that's also the explanation as to why some people certainly have a very, um, you know, negative view on, on what we do because they read something. Um, you know, there are plenty of books that uh, claim that this is how you should do trend following and it sounds easy and it's great. And either they, you know, rule, you know, use rules that, um, you know, are, are well publicized and probably not, uh, you know, that good. Why would you why would you even publish something that was really good? I mean, you wouldn't give it away uh, like that. So things that you read in books and papers, et cetera, et cetera, I think you have to take with a grain of salt. And the other thing is that. Again, as we've talked about before, you can't just look at a trend following in isolation on one market or a sector. Or, you know, you have to get the other part of the puzzle, which is diversification, for it to really work well. And 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 a lot of people can't start out trading fifty markets. Uh, you know, so uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, important. Did you find more, uh, Jerry, that you thought were good to bring up today? Well, I think we should uh, all three weigh in on the article. Oh yeah. AHL, Financial <laughs> Times, um, start with the a non-controversial quote. We believe that the reason why trend following exists is tied to human biases and how, we act, and how we react to news. We don't think human biases have gone away. As a species, we have not evolved very much in terms of the crowd behavior that drives trends. Giving up on core features of markets, features that have been observable for a very long periods of time, doesn't feel like a smart thing. So he's our friend. Marty Louis. That was Louis, I think. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I have to say, I fall in, in Marty and Mike's uh, camp on this one. I mean, David is a smart guy, and one shouldn't underestimate his views at all. Um, but I think when it comes to trend following, um, I mean, we, on our side, we don't see any evidence of it. In fact, our returns are stronger in the last six years as they have been in the previous longer term time frame. So when people say, oh yeah, it was easy in the 80s and the 90s, well, you know, actually we're we're, we're able to deliver better risk adjusted returns and even higher absolute returns. Uh, so we don't see the evidence that uh, Harding sees, but I will agree, doing trend following on 20 billion, I don't think that's a that's doable really uh, to, to the extent where you deliver um, very strong returns. I just think that that's the classic trap of uh, being being too big for any strategy. It doesn't only relate to what we do. To large. Well, the good thing, you know, at the very end of the article in the Financial Times, by the way, um, he, I think David uh, Harding said, I've made the decision, I've made the call, and um, it'll take another 10 years or so until, you know, we know whether it's the right decision. And then he'll say, but it will change my life. So he knows he's put himself on the spot. It could be, it's a risky, a risky trade he did there, right? And I think he's aware of that. It's a risky trade to uh, de-emphasize trend following. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was my favorite. I just pinned it to, as my top, top tweet in my account. And uh, I don't know if I fully understand it, but I darn sure like it. Uh, this is from the same article. I forgot I have quotes around it, but I don't remember who said this. Could have been someone else. Uh, the genius of trend following is not how awesome it is, but it's incredible mediocrity, which is far harder to engineer than people think. It's like, it's like trying to cheat at the casino. 
if you're too good, then then the casino throws you out. Here it comes. Trend works right at the edge of randomness. Now that's intriguing. I don't really know what that means. I can guess, and I, uh, but I'm not sure if I'd get it right. And uh, I've heard that from really smart people. It looks so much like randomness that, but it isn't. And so I've heard that before. So, uh, but I think that's like I like it because, ironically, in my opinion, of course, you need to stay really close to mediocrity. Don't try to be too good. Uh, don't base those stops on P&L or Vol. Your exit is your exit. <clears throat> if it's the 100-day low, it stays the 100-day low. Uh, and things like that. And I think that uh, it's hard to, to, to get smart people, intelligent people with fast computers to embrace mediocrity. That's the problem with the clients when we speak to them, right? It's like, hey, by the way, I'd like to be mediocre. I'm operating on the edge of randomness, and I don't, be, I don't want to be all too good. And then we go like, well, why don't we get any money? <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. But you're absolutely correct in what you say. I, I, I like that tweet also. That's why I was trying to ask Peter Borish, you know, yeah. um, are, do, do you think a lot of the famous macro guys sort of do trend in secret? I mean, he, yeah. he, he never answered. We, I couldn't get him to answer. But... Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's you should do both. Be a dedicated trend follower, and then figure out how to tell good stories. I mean, I think because at the end of the day, it is a business, and you have to maybe moderate uh, how you talk about it, and you certainly can make some modifications and compromises in order to keep your clients happy. And so that's really up, you know, where you are. You're you can't be uh, can't if you're gonna want to stay in the pure and the perfect then you probably won't have a lot to to manage you have to it's a business i mean i think we as an industry uh, i mean completely agree i think it's a beautiful way of uh, talking about these things i mean i think we as an industry when it comes to creating narrative um, and and story i think we should probably and should have done this a long time ago I think we should borrow more of the narrative from behavioral finance i think that's where we can find the stories that we may not have uh, from just being, uh, you know, rules-based, but in terms of explaining why rules-based strategies um, have performed and we believe continue will to to perform, um, I think it's it's all there for us to to dig out and uh, and and use in our in our travels in our conversations. Um, you know, because I do think that at the end of the day, that's another bias we have. I think people prefer to buy into um, into a story, into a narrative. So we need to, you know, present them with with that choice when it comes to trend following as well. Agreed. More tweets or questions at this stage? Uh, let's uh, do some questions. All righty, good stuff. So this question is from uh, Francois, who. Um, writes that he very much resonated uh, with our uh, conversation last week. Uh, he also had a rough week in uh, being along the bonds. And so he, he's, he goes, so my question is, how do you keep your cool with your friends and more importantly with your family after a very bad week? Um, do more push-ups, scream in the pillow, drink more wine, record a podcast with your quant friends, Personally, I listen to you guys, and it helps a lot. So, 
Any secrets to how we keep our cool? Moritz, how do you keep your cool? No secrets, so, but I guess everyone's different. I, uh, I must admit last week I had the, you know, one or two grumpy moments, which, uh, you know, people felt who didn't deserve it because it was not of their fault. But, uh, I guess I'm pretty good at managing that and, 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 you know, just taking it for what it is. But I mean, what, what helps me is, uh, a good round of tennis, going to the gym, just exercise, treating myself well, um, doing something completely different that, you know, gets my, my mind away from trading and my mind away from the markets and just calm down that way. And, uh, but of course, you know, in, in a week like last week, um, even, you know, when you come out of the gym, you go back to your, to your iPhone and you check where the markets are because, you know, it's, it's, it's a more intense period, but I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's just, uh, I've been through it a couple of times more and it, it happens, you know, every once in a while, I just know what it is like. I remind myself of the better times and uh, I know that it will pass or I hope that it will pass. And uh, in a couple of weeks time, all of this will be yesterday's news and kind of force myself into that state and um, just, you know, don't, don't think about it in money terms. I, I converted into percentages. I mean, I, I know how much money I'm down. It's kind of like, you know, a bummer, but then I go, well, no, that's the wrong, the wrong way of thinking about it. Don't, don't do this in a number of, you know, cars or Porsches or whatever. It's just, you know, percentage drawdown on the account and, and make it a neutral number. And that helps me. Other than that, I say I mean, I'm not perfect. I mean, it does, um, it does, it, it does affect me a little bit. Yeah. What about you, Jerry? Well, I think, uh, I'd like to, Maybe look at it from a different point of view. I, th I think uh, definitely some of the times I get stressed, it's, uh, it's, I should be stressed. I've got issues I need to take care of. And if I'm being stressed or I can't sleep or I'm too worried, you know, maybe I have, uh, maybe I'm trading too large. I'm, my, I have too many energies on. I have too many bonds on. I'm, over, I'm not diversified enough. I haven't followed my system to the T like I should have. Um, so I think some of these uh, periods can, can be useful because uh, you need to get into a situation where this is not stressful and you're making a lot of small trades, a lot of small decisions, and uh, find some sort of uh, bottom line of just following the system and uh, being concerned, you know, maybe f uh, being maybe a little uh, wondering what's going on in some of the markets that are causing you some uh, issues. But uh, by and large, you know, there's not a lot going on most of the time. So I don't really care to know what my performance is today, or I don't really care to know um, what the markets are doing today. I'd risk, you know, uh, if something big's going on, you can tell me I'm not going to do anything. So even why ask about that? Yeah. I, so just, uh, yeah, not concentrating on daily performance and not looking at the markets too much, especially for someone like me who I'm going to hold trades six to 12 months on average. And so, seriously, I, it's just a destabilizing thing to keep looking at the quotes and looking at performance. And, oh, I'm at the worst, comparing your performance. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, that's evil. Oh, that is the worst. And we all do it. We're all competitive. Uh, somehow, I'm less than. And, uh, and then I can tell you right now, if I looked at Moritz's performance and Dunn's performance, I could care less. Uh, 
down a lot. If I had an investment, I could care less. I mean, they're good. They've been around a long time. They're great. It's going to work out in the end. So what if Dunn has done better recently than Moritz? Or I don't care. It's not, uh, I've seen enough. But you throw my personal performance in there, <laughs> now you're talking serious business. And I have such thin skin. I don't like to be criticized. I don't like to be made fun of. And I don't like uh, to have performance that's not number one. And I think, uh, so just stay away from that. Some of these things were humans. I think uh, I've said many times that people are right to think that it's wrong to have a 50% drawdown in the S&P 500. But it comes back, and you make your 8%. Just buy and hold, leave it alone. Now, I think these biological urges we have of protecting ourselves and feeling nervous and not thinking that that's correct. These are correct responses to have as humans. We don't always have the wrong response. Uh, Self-preservation and living, uh, we have a lot of things in us that <clears throat> we want uh, at our disposal. We can't ignore them. Uh, but we do need to ignore some of the things that set us off. And uh, that's what I've tried to do over the years. I got that out of uh, a Taleb book, I think, Fooled by Randomness. I read that book one day in the late 90s, early 2000s, and uh, he says in there in one chapter, like, don't look at performance every day. I was like, oh, my God, I never thought of that. I haven't looked at daily performance since, and it's made my mental health much better. I mean, I think this, I mean, you you bring up some really good points, uh, both of you that, uh, you know, I agree with completely. Um, for me, first of all, I would say, because at this stage in, in my uh, career, I, I don't have to do, or I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day trading. I don't have to put in any trades or anything like that. Being removed compared to where I've been uh, previously, I think, has certainly helped. Uh, so I understand and I realize it's, it's, it, it might be tougher for people who actually have to put in the trades or, or very, it's very close to that. So I'm in, in Jerry's camp on, on, I do look at performance every day, um, partly because my, you know, our clients expect me to know what's going on. So, so I have to do that. Um, but it doesn't affect me as much, uh, anymore with time. But when there are really tough periods, uh, which of course we have every year, pretty much, um, I think one thing that is really useful is just to go back and revisit the long-term track record uh, and just see that, oh yes, we've had almost every single year, we've had a double-digit down month or, you know, but usually there's also a double-digit up month. So things like that just put things into perspective. And then you can also look at, you know, just long-term performance in general to uh, to calm you down. And, and, uh, and I think that the hardest thing that we as managers have to do when managing expectations from investors is to somehow make them see this as a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year investment. This this is the hardest thing I think we, we, we have to do. And it's really hard to make them see these investments long-term, even though a lot of investors, as soon as you start talking about equities, it, it becomes long-term. Oh, yeah, I'm not buying Apple today to sell it next week or next year. I'm buying Apple for the long run, right? Well, you should do the same with trend following. That's really how you make the most of that. So, um, but, yeah, no, I mean, we will all, all have different ways to uh, release our uh, our concerns. And uh, some of the things Jerry and, and Moritz mentioned are certainly things that, uh, that work for, for most people. 
So, I think uh, Wayne had a tweet. I can't really remember it, but it was gave me a, the impression I could make fun of investors because I really dislike this whole idea that investors are the morally and ethical ones, and the traders. Oh my gosh, traders—they're like horrible, short term, this and that. And I, and so I think that uh, sometimes investors they have a trade that they put on, and when it loses money almost immediately it becomes an investment. Whereas the trader, we have our established stop loss and we just go ahead and take it as a stop loss. But I think the investor would be better suited to also take those small losses and not sort of uh, embarrassingly uh, start to recategorize it as an investment because they don't want to take a small loss. So I think all of the things that we do as traders, as risk managers, is uh, you know, certainly tools that everyone should consider. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next question. This is from Adrian. Adrian will be one of the people joining us in New York uh, in just a few weeks now, next month. So that's great. Look forward to that. Um, and Adrian was listening to uh, my conversation with Daniel Crosby. Um, uh, and, um, and he says in one of his comments, he mentioned that the best and most useful uh, or the most successful traders are the ones who do close to nothing. My question to the panel uh, for the next episode is, what is your view on his comments? Doesn't his comments contradict the systematic trading philosophy and mirrors the buy and hold strategy? Looking forward to your comments. Adrian, maybe I can just jump in on this one first. Um, I mean, I actually think that, that kind of long-term, medium to long-term trend following, which is what the three of us do, uh, kind of fits that, meaning for most of the time we don't do much we we may trade two or three times um in terms of changing of position in a market maybe only once per year because we are you know long term in 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 nature and uh, so so in a sense i completely agree with uh, uh there's two ways of looking at it, of course you could say you should buy a long term trend follower and then do nothing just leave it 30 years with jerry or with don or whatever that's that that's you know that's that's the best investment you can do of course that is true um but even inside the trend following strategy uh that the, the three of us run um you know we're we're not nearly as active as a lot of people might think we are uh and uh, and i think therefore it actually fits with with that one of the things that daniel crosby is referring to of course is that it, you know, making uh, decisions, uh, certainly when you're in some kind of emotional state, uh, is something that you shouldn't do. And that goes for in investing as well. You know, so, so generally speaking, investors making too many decisions um, is probably not going to uh, benefit your uh, account uh, over time. That's how I interpret it, Adrian. Thoughts, Jerry, Moritz? Nothing to add, really. I think you've uh, summarized it perfectly, Niels. Well, I think, uh, you know, he's right. Uh, at the end of the day, you're going to follow your system. So your preference of being long or short, long-term or shorter term or doing nothing, is just a function of the system that you've chosen. And you've chosen it based upon numbers, hopefully. And uh, my systems that I've chosen based upon what I think are the best numbers, they are fairly long-term. So I'm frequently doing nothing. And I, I sort of... Um, as you do the research and look at the numbers, I sort of started to get some sort of, uh, you know, what, I, what is the market sort of telling me? What is this? What are these numbers sort of saying? And uh, <clears throat> it was sort of like uh, 
make it hard to get in, you know, see some good trend, see some strong trends, then get in, and then be patient. And uh, these markets can trend uh, for years or months. And so if it's material break in the market or material sell-off and uh, hits your long-term exit, then that's your indication. But uh, yeah, just don't be eager. Um, and it's how I sort of dis devise my systems is that uh, felt like I wanted to hang in there with those long-term trends and do nothing for most of the part of the time because the numbers sort of showed me they're doing more was uh, made the performance worse. Yeah, so we have to remember that doing nothing is doing something, um, so to speak. All right. Uh, thanks, Adrian, for your question. Next question is, uh, or the last two questions actually is from James. Uh, James starts out with this. Um, I had a question on portfolio volatility. Setting aside the debate on whether volatility is real a real measure of risk for a moment, do you find there is a wide range uh, of investor appetite to portfolio slash fund volatility? Do you think hedge funds in general need to be more flexible in offering the same product uh, but at different or differing ranges of volatility? Or should we take the lead? Jerry, I know you have a long record with uh, different versions of your strategy. At least I remember we had it when I worked with you many, many moons ago. So uh, what's your view on this? Should we offer different levels, levels leverage? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, <clears throat> conservative program and an aggressive program, something like that, where the only difference can be... Uh, Maybe one is targeting 8% and one's targeting 12%, something like that I think is good, or 10 and 15. Uh, we started that many years ago, and uh, sort of the key is to, for the aggressive program to not be too aggressive and uh, to where people get scared, but it's certainly uh, some people would prefer a little bit more cash uh, efficiency or more just pure return than others, and then it's awfully uh, helpful that people can uh, <clears throat> look at, the, you know, if the their aggressive program that they're in is, you know, down 20, uh, they can look at the uh, the other program and say, well, it's only down, you know, 12 or 15, so things are not that bad. I think it's hard for clients to sort of figure out, is this a really bad performance? Is it system-related? Is it leverage-related? And uh, when you have two programs and you're sort of uh, are the same, except one is a little bit more volatile, volatile and higher returns, then uh, having that uh, lower leverage program can sometimes give people more courage to to hang with the high leverage. What about you, Martz? What's your view on this point? I think most of the funds out there and asset managers out there, they offer a lot of customization to clients these days. It's not just, you know, I have a 1x program and a 2x program and you have to choose between one or the other. Uh, in my experience, that industry has become you know, a very client-focused, um, customer-oriented uh, industry and, and, and customization is part of the game. So if clients want to have, you know, exactly 13% vol, well, then that can be produced, right? Here's here's the magic count. If you want to have that market excluded and the other one included, well, that can be produced. I think that's done all over the place. Um, now, with, re with respect to vol, vol itself, um, you know, sometimes when you look at the what I get the feeling, at least when I speak to clients, is there is a failure to differentiate between upside volatility and downside volatility. Volatility is not a bad thing all the time. I've never met 
a client um, complaining about too much volatility to the upside, making a 27% up month and then another 13% up month. I mean, I haven't had this, but you know, there's CTAs out there. Uh, Mulvaney, for instance, let's mention the name, trading at those type of volatility levels, right? They have it up and down, but you know, when it's up, it's not too bad. So volatility is just um, working in both ways and and you need to be willing to embrace it up and down if you are in this business. There's just no way to make money if nothing's moving. So volatility is part of the equation. But don't always look on the downside. Yeah, no, I agree. And and actually, I think with when it comes to volatility, I think it's important that investors just choose whatever they're comfortable with, whatever they can stick with. That's the key thing. I mean, we were slow as a firm to offer more than one type of leverage. We, we offer two now. Um, one is the original. The other one is half of the original. And clearly the half or, uh, leverage version uh, has a much bigger appeal with institutional investors because even though they know the other one is more cash efficient, um, then the fact that they don't have to show on their uh, line items when they go through the various investments they have during their committee meetings, the fact that they don't have to show a, a fund that is uh, up and down, a double digit uh, on a regular basis can be useful. Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, choose the uh, amount of leverage that um, uh, that is reasonable. I don't think you have to offer too many versions. I mean, a couple of versions is probably enough. Um, but if, if you have the ability to do so, um, make it easier for the client. Always look at things from the client's perspective. It doesn't really matter what we think. It's or, or the only thing that matters is what's best for the client. Always take that stance. So, uh, and I agree with that, but... Um not sure if you've uh, if you agree with me, but my observation is that since say the past twenty years or fifteen years, the volatility of alternative investment programs or CTAs has only gone one way down. So it seems that clients want less and less volatility all the time. You know, probably um, by the turn of the century, there's like 20% vol or between 15 and 20% vol was kind of like normal for any alternative manager out there, be that, you know, equities focused, CTA, trend following, you name it. And I would say that the majority of those are now at about 10 vol. And, you know, I see, I see programs being launched at eight, some at five. So it's, it's, it's just down, 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 down making the return profile smoother so it's easier to digest, easier to take, um, easier to stick with, probably what the client wants, what's good for the business, but it's also making substantially less returns. And, you know, I've said this repeatedly is everybody has to know what they want to get out of this, of this game of trading, you know, whether it's the pleasant experience and the smooth return stream every single month over time, no large drawdowns, or whether it's, well, I want to make a substantial amount of money with that. And if you want to do this, then there's no 5% vol. It needs to be higher. Actually, I think you make an excellent point, Moritz. Um, first of all, on the historical uh, development, I think that institutionals, uh, investors becoming such a dominant force in this industry has, has driven down uh, managers' offering in terms of volatility because they, they, they prefer the lower vol. But actually, I think that, that we need to be really careful about that because costs don't go down to the same extent. So if you keep driving the vault down, your your net return just ends up going down. 
And and I think that we're we're very very close to a limit whereby it makes no sense to offer a five volt product if your cost inside the the product is you know a percent percent and a half. Let alone take into account credit um, uh, trading cost and 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 so on and so forth. So it, it really makes no sense to me to have products really below ten percent vol that of course also can deliver decent returns. Um, uh, because there are simply costs that we can't, you know, remove, and um, and they have to be paid. And why would you pay three percent to get maybe two percent back? Uh, it, it, that to me doesn't make no sense. But I think that is unfortunate, uh, and it's a consequence of how um, institutional investors have um, expressed their preference, and managers have just obeyed. Of course, I had a big discussion with David Harding when I interviewed him. Um, and and it, for him it was a choice. I mean, he just didn't want to be caught in a big um, sell-off in in uh, like the nineteen eighty-seven uh, October um, situation. So he decided to lower the vol of his product. Um, but I don't know that that's a benefit to investors, frankly. Then they should just invest less. Yeah. But you know, let, don't forget, in Europe at least, uh, we have negative interest rates. So if you run a CTA program here in Euro and uh, in Euros, and say you're targeting five vol, well, guess what? You know, about ninety percent of your money will sit in boo bills or some short-term cash equivalent instrument that will, you know, yield between minus fifty and minus eighty basis points every year. So it's it's like from a cash efficiency point of view. That is not optimal. That's just a massive drag on your performance. And you'd probably, well, not probably, you'd have a higher expected return if you accepted more volatility, had a higher margin to equity ratio, and less investment in those negative yielding securities, and more bang for the buck. Yeah, and God forbid, like in the old days, where a lot of the collateral was just sitting in a bank, right? I mean, yeah. back then, we yeah. didn't think bank could go could, could, could go under. And you that, have the credit risk of yeah, that bank. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, good question, uh, James. Um, any thoughts on this, uh, Jerry? Do you want to... Any thoughts on this? Oh, no. I'm, I like Joe's answers. Okay, cool. All right. So, James follows up uh, with the last question of today. Uh, he says, I've heard Jerry mention it is part of... Ah, I have to go back to the beginning of the question, sorry. He says, I did have a quick question on trading individual equities. I've heard Jerry mention it is part of his overall portfolio. I was curious whether he was using his trend-following techniques on the individual names or on a basket of names. Is there any particular reason why he would choose one way or the other? So that is a question for you, Jerry. Um, yeah, so we, as I've said, uh, we trade... Um individual stocks, long and short, with the same systems as we trade the commodities and the currencies and interest rates and uh, try to treat the stock market and the, that portion of, the, of our portfolio in the same way. Um, and the first step is to put together the, you know, the stocks that you're going to trade and include in your portfolio. It's a constant list given that uh, some stocks will go out of business or be bought, and so we'll have to make some changes over time. But hopefully it'll be pretty constant, and uh, we'll put that, we put that portfolio, we choose those stocks based upon their correlation to the other stocks. It's that simple. So I want, in the biggest bull market of all time, I'd prefer to be short some stocks. 
because that means that I have done a good job uh, or had some luck that uh, I do have a group of stocks that are uh, different and not correlated. <clears throat> so I'm going to look at volume and, uh, you know, the liquidity and share volume per day and then maybe get uh, one stock or two stocks from a lot of different sectors, industries, and then put it into my computer and see if uh, <clears throat> see how that looks as far as correlations go. So that's how I do it because that's how I do all the markets. So all, none of uh, my choices on markets to trade or how to trade them have anything to do with historical performance uh, other than uh, the correlation. Yeah. And and it is true, James, that there are obviously some firms that combine certain data series into synthetic uh, price data. Um, but I think for, for the classical uh, managers, um, and certainly the three of us, we just take the, the, the raw price of each individual contract and, and that's oh, what, what is, we trade. Oh, what does that mean? Uh, in in terms of what? Uh, Creating synthetic? Yes, uh, synthetic. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I think actually uh, our our big Dutch friends, peers, you know, peer peers in, in our space, we all know who they are. I think uh, there was a period of time at least where they were combining things to create synthetic price uh, series to trade. I'm pretty sure Harold talked about that in some of my conversations with him. So I think it's been done. I don't know whether it's more you know better or worse but um we don't do it you don't do it i don't think Mart does it but uh but it is true i've heard about it yeah i've tried it i've worked on that project for a long time 20 years and i never i haven't cracked it um you know if you look at it in terms of let's say um the currency crosses sterling yen euro swiss and Euro yen, things like that. That's how I sort of tried to approach it. <clears throat> but I could not make it work um, for the stocks. So, uh, yeah, but it's a great idea. And maybe others have. Yeah, sure. Any thoughts you wanted to add, uh, Moritz? No, okay. nothing to add. Cool. All right. Well, let's um, let me quickly run through the numbers uh, as of uh, most part Thursday evening, which is yesterday uh, compared to when we are recording this, uh, which is actually normal. We normally get data from Thursday evening. Um, and then if you want to think of anything else to bring up uh, before we uh, close, that would be uh, that would be great. Um, so the beta 50 index uh, for the month of September down 3.89, uh, but still up 8.22 for the year. Uh, Sokjen CTA index down 4% for the month, up 7.69. Sokjen trend index down this month 6.47, up 12.19 for the year. The Sokjen short-term traders index uh, down 1.5, uh, but still up 1.58 for the year. And the Bridgewater Alternatives, this number is actually as of Wednesday. They have not opted to their site yet. Um, so it was down 5.79, up just shy of 10% for the year. Um, any final thoughts, topics uh, you want to bring up um, before we close down for this week? Well, just want to say I like those numbers that you report. We're having a good year as an industry, I think. Uh, and... Uh, you know, maybe maybe last week is forgotten before we know it. Yeah. Any final thoughts on your side, Jerry? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that um, our performance is continued to be tied to the trends in the markets. It feels helpless, and uh, we get criticized, but um, 
you know, it's great to see that when the markets trend, we make money. And that has not changed. Uh, we need to see how we do in capturing these profits and how these trends end. But uh, so far, so good. And that's perfectly fine to uh, wait on these wonderful markets that we trade and massive diversification, longs and shorts to, to be what really um, is going to deter determine our fate. Perfect way to end this week's conversation. So we're going to wrap it up. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, if you want to give back something to uh, the podcast, of course, uh, all we ask is that you would share this episode with a like-minded friend. From Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on next week's edition of The Systematic Investor. In the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.